0: Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Take your Bibles again to Colossians chapter number 3. And uh, as we begin this morning, and uh, we look at this text, and really what's going on here is uh, a transformation. It's, it's a description of the transformation that should happen in our life whenever we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, no person uh, that trusts Jesus as our Savior should live the same after as they did before. Uh, there ought to be a change. Uh, I'm not saying this morning that, that change produces salvation. I'm saying that salvation produces change. Uh, and when we learn to uh, get in line with the, the Scripture and connect with the Lord Jesus Christ, then He wants to do a great work in our heart. And so, uh, as we look here, and the Apostle Paul describes here in this text about dying to self and being dead to the old man and putting on the new man, and, uh, and it really, it just sounds like, well, this is a decision. I decide that the old man's dead, and I decide to put on the new man, and really and truly it is. It's not that complicated. It's not necessarily easy to overcome the flesh, but, uh, but it starts with a determination of the mind. I have to make a decision that I'm going to allow God to work in my heart. I'm glad that when Jesus saved us, uh, that he said that we are a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ. I'm glad that the old man is dead and gone, or can be, if I allow him to die and I keep him there. Uh, but it is a struggle at times. And I want you to notice as we uh, just kind of work our way down to verse number 12 and get really to the essence of the message this morning, uh, that he says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the hand, uh, on the right hand of God. Uh, seek are we seeking and then we get to verse number two and he says set your affection on things above not on things of the earth now we look here and we consider this word affection the word affection here means to direct one's mind to a thing so if I uh, say I'm going to set my affection it means that I'm going to shift my thinking I have to by by intentionally I have to intentionally change what I'm focused on in my thinking. And so when we talk about setting our affection, set your affection. In other words, change your focus. Change what you're looking to. Change what you are uh, dwelling on. But it goes beyond just meaning to draw my attention to or to direct my mind to a thing. It means to come ultimately into agreement with this new thing that I'm focused on. And so as a Christian, when I trusted Jesus as my Savior and he saved me, the directive here is that I, that I set my affections on things that are above. I set my attention, I set my direction on the things that Jesus has established that should make up and, and cause, uh, co- my life should coalesce around. Uh, and then ultimately, I come into agreement with that new way of thinking. Uh, you know, there are there are a lot of times that we go through things in life where uh, we get confronted with something that might be new to our way of thinking. And certainly salvation is that uh, to a lost person or to someone that's never heard the, the message of the gospel. Uh, and that is an increasing thing in our day and age in the time in which we live. It is it is becoming, even in our area, uh, a much more common thing to run into people that really don't know who Jesus Christ is or anything about the gospel. Uh, to a lot of people today, even in our nation, uh, the Jesus Christ is nothing more uh, than a swear word or slang. Uh, it means nothing. Uh, and so, but to us who uh, know Him, it should mean everything. Uh, and as we look here, what he's deter- what he's laying out is he's saying, set your affection on things above. See, before I found Jesus, I, my affections were set on the things of this world. Before I knew the Lord Jesus Christ, my attention was drawn and my affections were set on my desires and my ambitions and my goals for life. And. Uh, and, uh, and the things that I desired, and quite honestly, most of the times those desires were just strictly about what this physical entity, this body, this being wanted. My flesh was in command and in charge. My body, a lot of times, was in, com- in control and in charge. And we just react without Christ to what our body says it wants. And so, uh, you know, we, we respond that way and we build a life really based upon that whole philosophy but here he says now that you've put your attention or your faith in christ set your affection not on the things of this world but on things that are above Set your affection on that, not which is carnal, but that which is spiritual. Uh, and ultimately, as I am introduced to new way, a new way of life, a new way of living, a new, uh, a new directive from the scripture uh, that I, I understand intellectually, this is what God has said. I don't necessarily understand it, but I'm going to by faith launch out and try to live it. That ultimately, when I take those steps of faith, it's going to bring me to a place where Where I begin to see the value and I begin to believe and I begin to uh, become those things that Jesus has ordered me or commanded me to become. And so we're talking about here on setting our affection on things above. It starts with making a decision. It starts with saying, hey, I am going to direct my mind to this thing, realizing that the more that I live it and the more that I experience him and the more that he has of me, the more in agreement with it I'm going to become. And ultimately, as a Christian, I want to walk with Jesus in agreement. By the way, I really can't walk with him effectively until I am in agreement. In the Old Testament and the prophets told us that And ask the question, can two walk together except they be agreed or be of the same mind? We cannot uh, be in good, complete harmony and fellowship with anyone with whom we are not of the same opinion or mind about things. Can we learn to get along? Yes. Will we ever be fully in agreement? No. Uh, And so what we want in the Christian life is to be in agreement with Jesus. We want our life and our spirit to be in agreement with his spirit and his life. And he tells us plainly that the old life is, there's nothing about the old us that will ever be in agreement with the spirit and the embodiment of Christ. Therefore, it must die. And then a new life must be born and lived. And so he tells us there, verse number five, mortify, therefore, or because of this principle, mortify your members which are upon the earth. Uh, And then he goes down a bunch of things that list the problems that we uh, that we have uh, that we have embraced as uh, as people, as a culture, as an individual. Uh, and he says these things are the things that you need to stop. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, and evil concupiscence, by the way, is another form of covetousness that's limited to uh, or focused more on, uh, on a, a more wicked vein of things, not just material things around. And so... Uh, it's the covenant of carnal things by definition. Uh, and so we see here, I've got to set my life on a new course. And, and Or better yet, I have to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to set my life on a new course. Uh, he needs to be directing and in charge of my life. And so uh, when he goes here, uh, set your affection on things of uh, above, not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now notice in verse number 12, put on therefore as the elect of God Holy and beloved bowels of mercies, and then he starts the new list, and we're going to really look at that list that he gives here this morning because it is what should make up the embodiment or the essence of the Christian life. Well, and we start with bowels. What are bowels? Well, bowels. When you talk about our bowels, we're talking about kind of like the heart. It's the inner part, figuratively, part of man. It is that deep part of us. It is that uh, that that deep inner man. By definition, it means the core. And, you, and then by definition, the essence of, and that which makes something up. Uh, essence is that which constitutes a particular nature of a being. And so when we talk about our essence, we're talking about what is the nature of our being? What am I known for? What am I known as? What character traits define who I am and what people know about me? Now, and listen, uh, sometimes... We think we know who we are and we think we know uh, how we present outwardly, but many times we're deceived. Uh, I want to be sure that I am submitted to the will of God and that I'm allowing the Spirit of God to work through me so that what is transformed, I don't want the outward things that I do to just be an act that I put on because we're in church or to be an act that I put on because. Uh, you know, somebody's watching or they might. Uh, what we are outwardly should be genuine. Who we are, how our faith manifests itself in our day-to-day life should be real. Uh, it should it should be authentic to people. You say, well, pastor, how do I do that? It starts in here. I can pretend to be a lot of things. There are a lot of people in this world that make a great living uh, acting, But Christians ought not be them in our day-to-day life. Uh, What we put on in our persona outwardly should not be an act. It should be a revelation of the essence of who we are inwardly. It should be a revelation of the essence of our walk with Christ. And so as we talk about the essence, we're talking about that which constitutes our nature that defines who we are. You could say it's that which distinguishes you from all others. And the principle here is this. It is a transformation from the old nature to the new nature in Christ. Set affection and come into agreement with the new nature. So I'm bringing my life as God leads me. And it is the working of the spirit to bring my life into agreement with the nature of Christ. That's the Christian life. When we personify Christ to the world around us. Now, how do I do that? Well, it starts with faith. I have to have faith in Christ uh, to, to establish, first of all, salvation, uh, but beyond that, an effective Christian life, an effective walk with God. And so Ephesians chapter six and verse sixteen uh, lists about the shield of faith, and he uh, and he says there, and as he's dealing with all of the spiritual warfare and all the things that we have to face, and the battles that we face from Satan to his demons to uh, to uh, powers, political figures, whoever it is in our life, whether it be spiritual or whether it be in human form, uh, that it be something that that we are engaged in battle with. That there is an uh, there is a world order. There is a uh, a system of this world that has been devised by the God of this world to lead us from God and to cripple us from ever finding salvation. That, that's Satan's purpose. He wants to do everything he can uh, to hurt God and he will gladly hurt us or use us to do so. And so when we get into, and we're not going to get into all the armor this morning except uh, where he, he lists about and taking, uh, and above all, taking the shield of faith, Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts uh, of the wicked. Now, the, the armor of God is very important. And are you on Fridays? We've been, uh, for weeks, we've been going through it piece by piece. And, uh, and so all of it's important. It's important that, uh, that, we, that, we're, that we're fully clothed in armor before we go to battle. But it's interesting here that he says, above all, above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, the shield uh, that Paul describes and what Paul's uh, what Paul's vision would have been would have been that of the Roman soldier, that's who dominated the landscape in those days. The Roman shield was two foot wide and it was four foot tall uh, and it was made primarily of wood uh, and it had leather and, uh, fastened over it. The edges were beveled so that they could take and they could stand in a line and they could interlock them so that if they had a force that tried to penetrate their line uh, they and, and a man was knocked down or a man was was wounded or killed, uh, that shield was locked in place in that wall and that wall would bend but there was no way to get through because it was hooked together, it was fastened together. Uh, it Really interesting is that when they would make their shields, they would take that that two by four foot piece of wood and then they would, they would uh, fasten cloth to it, strips of cloth, before they laid the leather over top of it so that they could take it before they went to battle because oftentimes in those days they would shoot fiery arrows because they knew the Roman uh, shields would lock and there was a wall and if they could light them on fire, then they would burn and eventually the soldiers would have to drop them uh, to avoid being burned. And so uh, what the Romans did is that they put that cloth in under the leather. They would go and they would soak that wood and that cloth in water before they went to battle so that whenever the fiery darts came and penetrated into the shield, uh, the water and the dampness of the cloth under the leather uh, would quench the fiery dart. Uh, And so that's the picture here. And above all, take the shield of faith that you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked or of the enemy. Uh, And so we want to understand this morning that God has made it possible for us to live a victorious Christian life that God understands that we will come under attack, that that life will not always be easy, uh, but he wants us to have the confidence of knowing that as we embrace or that we turn our affection on things above and we begin this journey and this walk of faith, that when attacks come, our faith can sustain us and the Holy Spirit can guide us and we can have the victory. It's just a matter of do I trust in God? And so he said, "Take the shield of faith." And by the way, faith always has evidence. And so faith is not something that's just blind. Faith is not something that just that you just look at and uh, the, that and that there's never any way to look and see. Hey, is this real? If there's anything that I've learned after I before I even trusted Jesus as my Savior, is that I could see the effect of His work in the lives of others, and that's what draws us to Him. And as a Christian, I've seen the evidence of faith. I've seen prayer answered. I've seen God intervene uh, in situations and uh, done things to to build my faith. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is not without evidence. Faith has evidence. Faith shows and you can see God uh, working in life. And so we can have confidence that when the fiery darts come, even in waves of thousands as they would in a battle in those days, uh, that they all can be quenched by by our faith in Christ. Faith quenches all. And we have sometimes more faith in UPS and FedEx than we do in God. And we'll make an order online and we'll have every confidence that it's going to be delivered when they say, But yet we fail sometimes to go to God in prayer when we have a great need. Listen, as a Christian this morning, I cannot tell you that you will not face attack. And that attack could come in a lot of different ways. It might come uh, from a family member. It might come from a co-worker. It might come from uh, a a brother or sister in Christ even uh, that's not in step and walking with the Lord. It might come in the form of an illness or disease. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be attacks in this life. There are going to be the effects of sin on a sin-cursed earth that we have to cope with. And he, and he told us that that would be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He said, Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. As a Christian this morning, we should not expect that we are on easy street and that life is just somehow because we have Christ that all of our problems are going to go away and we're never going to have a difficulty. On the contrary, we should expect some difficulty in life. Why? Because we have the promise of the Holy Spirit of God to assist us and to help us and to guide us. And through our difficulty and sometimes suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up and glorified so that others can be drawn unto him. It's a matter of, do I have the faith to allow God to live in me and to work in my life? And so there are the six primary principles here uh, that we see in these couple of verses that make up the essence of being a Christian. What should define us as a Christian? What should my life embody? And if someone were to look at me uh, and to try to to, to figure me out and say, let me observe you for a while, Pastor, and let me uh, watch these things, what traits of my character should they see? Now, I'll just tell you this morning, I'm not very confident on some days that they would come up with the right list. And they might get an accurate list, but it might not be the list that I want them to have. Uh, And so, because some days we just don't do as well as we do on others. And and I believe that these things are in a divine order. Uh, And I, for example, uh, he starts off with mercy and he moves to kindness. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But you really would have a hard time being kind without being merciful. And so I can uh, make a choice to be uh, merciful. And so we're going to look at these things this morning uh, as we make our way through these couple of verses here. Put on therefore in verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. And so we start this morning with the essence of mercy. And when we look at mercy and we consider mercy... And I really my my objective this morning is to just help us to understand what these things are in the list and uh, and then to uh, allow the Holy Spirit as we kind of review them and study them in our own devotional life uh, to develop us in these areas. And so (coughs) the essence of mercy. So what is mercy? Mercy is something that we sing about. It's something that we will we, uh, we'll even uh, say amen at times about whenever we hear it or preach it or it's sung. Uh, mercy is something that uh, is indispensable. I mean, we'd be in a, in a whole lot of trouble this morning if God did not bestow upon us mercy. Uh, mercy is important. But mercy simply means pardon, to be pardoned. It's that which causes a person to overlook injury. And to treat an offender better than he deserves. Now, so what I'm saying this morning is this. If we understand the concept of mercy, is that in mercy, when I deal with mercy, is that mercy is, does not mean that I am injury free. Mercy means that I have been injured and then I, and then I take and treat the person who injured me better than they deserve. That I issue forgiveness, that I pardon them, that I treat them as if they have never done me wrong. Now, if you think that that's an easy thing, think again. That is a very difficult thing to do. And it takes a lot of spiritual maturity and growth in Christ to come to a place where that becomes our nature. See, what we're talking about here this morning is not embodying these things in our life on occasion. We are talking about these things becoming the essence of who we are. This is a radical transformation of the people that we were before Jesus to the people that He wants us to be after. And this is part of a lifelong journey. This is something that takes a lot of effort and uh, and prayer and commitment and work. Why? Because it's hard to treat someone that has hurt you and someone that has wronged you as if they've never done you harm. It's hard to pardon them. And I understand this morning... I cannot show mercy to you, Brother Buck, unless you have wronged me. So when you look at someone and you say, okay, this person is merciful, what you're really saying is this person has been done great injury and they forgave and they treated that person kindly. That's what God's done for us. We have experienced God's mercy. He sent His Son to pay our penalty on Calvary's cross. He did everything that needed to be done for us. We in that experience His mercy. We have injured Him. We have wronged Him. And if you think, well, Pastor, maybe I haven't injured Him that much. No, you condemned His Son to a cross. You caused Him to have to sacrifice His only child, His only begotten Son, to have to shed His blood and sacrifice His life on your behalf. There is no greater injury that you could cause someone than to cause them to have to sacrifice their child, let alone their only child. We have done God and caused God great harm, great in, great injury because of our nature. So, Pastor, but I, I, I was born with that nature. Exactly. There's not anything that we could have done about it. It is a byproduct of living on an earth that has been cursed by sin because of Adam's decision in the garden. It has been passed down. It's spiritually speaking, it is our genetic Uh, It's our spiritual DNA that causes us to have a sinful nature. It determines who we are. You don't believe that? If you're a parent, then just look at your child. That's right, Shaylee, you're a sinner. According to Josh, you're a sinner. According to Michelle, you're a big sinner. We're all sinners. We do wrong. You You don't have to teach children how to do wrong. You have to teach them how to do right. You don't have to teach a child to lie, you have to teach him not to. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish, you have to teach him not to. You have to teach him to share. Why? Because it's our nature. We just do it because that's who we are. That's the essence of our being. And what the beauty of this is, is the transformation from that, that essence to the essence of the essence of God. And so we're talking about mercy here. And for for me to show mercy, I have to have been done wrong. And it's interesting as we go through this, what we'll see is that it starts here and it comes back to this as it gets down to the end of the next verse. So the essence of mercy. Mercy is what kicks in when every emotion within me rages. You see, you come and do harm to my family, what you're going to get is rage you come and harm my wife, you're going to get rage. If you come and uh, and attack uh, church members and attack the work of what God's trying to do in Victory Baptist Church from my my initial instinct is, is anger and rage, mercy kicks in or shouldn't kick in and helps overcome that. It is the acting out and the embodiment of, uh, of the old nature and, and the embracing of the new nature. And by the way, it's not always sinful to be angry. God told us to be angry and sin not. But it is the essence of mercy. Secondly, consider that it moves to Kindness. So when I become merciful, when I show mercy, when I extend mercy, uh, you, could, you could say that, well, pastor, isn't that kind? Well, it leads to it and, uh, and it is, uh, and you cannot have, but you cannot hide kindness or mercy. You, it's, it's not something that can be uh, put away. If it is true and it's real, uh, then it's real. Kindness is the disposition that delights and contributing to the happiness of others. See, mercy is not necessarily that. Mercy is forgiving someone who has wronged me. Kindness is taking delight in helping them become happy. A kindness, to show a kindness, it's to help someone accomplish something that is going to maybe solve a problem that they have or it's going to relieve some stress that they have in their life or uh, it's going to provide a need that they have as God uh, leads and intervenes. So we speak of kindness, we're talking about a disposition that delights in contributing to the happiness of others. It is cheerfully supplying wants and or alleviating distress In someone else's life. Now, I can show kindness without being a kind person. (coughs) I, I know a lot of people that have been mean. That at times have shown or done a kindness. I know people that have been quite hateful but maybe a particular thing touched their heart or in a, uh, in a moment of weakness, they, uh, they showed a kindness. That's not what we're talking about. Anybody can do that at any time. We're talking about the essence of kindness. We're, we're talking about being defined by a nature that is its first impulse is to show kindness. In other words, you're going through life and you just bounce into someone that's maybe having a tough time. And your first instinct is not, well, they're getting what they deserve. Your first instinct is, how can I help this go away? That, that's, 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 that's a struggle. I mean, I, quite honestly, I've been in places where I thought, yeah, they're getting what they deserve. And then, shame on me for thinking that, but sometimes I've thought it. I don't think it's pleasing to the Lord, but I'm just being honest this morning. I don't always respond or react or see things the way that I know that I should. And so, uh, what kindness is, or what a kind disposition, the essence of kindness, Frankie, is whenever my, uh, I look and I see a need or I see a hurt, and my first instinct is, how can I make this better? What can I give? What can I do? What can I provide? How can I help? Are you this morning? Am I this morning kind? To whom have I extended or shown mercy? What is the nature of the essence of my nature? What defines me? What makes me up? What is it that if something hits me sideways, how am I going to respond? By the way, the real test of how well my life is being transformed is not when I see something coming and have time to prepare, it's when it knocks me off my feet and catches me off guard and I respond in the moment. The essence of who we are responds in the moment. That's not always a pretty picture. Uh, Listen, I'm not saying it's not always a pretty picture for you. I, I haven't seen everybody here respond to things. I'm telling you in my own heart and life, that's not always a pretty picture. There are many times that my first reaction tends to be a little on the harsh side. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work on me and, and smites my heart and begins to speak to my heart and I have to kind of back up and, uh, and, and reassess and say, well, you know what's a beautiful thing is when you meet someone that's gotten to the point in their life when they're, when they're, they're it's just second nature to them to just be, do the right thing, to have the right response. Uh, to show things in the right manner. Uh, and, and there's a progression because I, I've gotten to the place in my life where uh, I don't always respond correctly outwardly, but, but I, the majority of the times I respond at least okay outwardly, but sometimes my, my correct outward response is masking uh, something inside that is responding in completely the wrong way. I mean, somebody can come into my office or somebody can bring something to my attention and inside, uh, I, I am like really seething and and really upset or really and I'll, I, I've gotten old enough and have been through enough of these scenarios to where uh, I at least on the outwardly, I can I can respond properly outwardly. But what we're talking about here is getting to a point where we respond properly instinctively inwardly. The essence of the Christian life. This is a complete transformation of life. And so, the essence of kindness. What we need in our life is what, uh, and I don't know if Sarah put this in the notes this morning. I, I seldom look up at, at, at the slide, but I, I have in my notes is the CMD. I'm not even sure where I got that, but it's the critical moment of decision. When somebody drops a bomb on you, and in that moment you're making a decision, it's that critical moment where I'm going to decide how, what's coming out of this mouth. What's coming over this face? And I have to admit, I I control what comes out of my mouth a whole lot better than I control what comes over my face at times. Don't laugh, Ed. That's not funny. It's sad. (laughs) (laughs) The critical moment of decision. Could you say in all honesty this morning that if you were to stand before God and God said, I want to evaluate the essence of who you are in Christ, that merciful and kind are what's going to come to the forefront? Is that what God is going to start His list with as He evaluates my life? Thirdly, this morning, He says, still in verse number 12, humbleness of mind. Humbleness of mind. A humble mind. You see, we are supposed to contend for the faith. But yet be humble. We are supposed to be a people that take a stand for truth, but humbly so. The word humble simply means low, of low, uh, not low value or, or or low self-esteem. I don't really like that term very much, but uh, but it is to, it is to contend for the faith, but not my way, God's way. The word by definition means low or submissive. Now, submissive is a good term. I am submitted to the will of God. I am submitted to the word of God. I am submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. God has given a command and I will follow it. I am am humble of mind. I am not going to rise up and say, okay, God, I know better than you do. And we do this in a lot of different areas of our life. For example, There'll be things in our life that we'll look at, and the, we know the Bible says uh, says this. Maybe about you, <coughs> a, maybe a young uh, a, a young couple that says, "Well, uh, you know, we're going to train up our children, but we're not going to, uh, you know, we're going to use the timeout system instead of uh, just kind of the old-fashioned way of spanking." Uh, well, what you're really saying in arrogance is, "I know more than you know, God, because God gave specific instructions on how to train our children." That's a whole another big sermon but uh, and but it's it's this it's the same principle and it carries over to every area of life when God says this is the way to go about it and I say okay God well in the day and age in which we live then this doesn't work or that doesn't work and so we're going to do it this way then what I'm doing is I'm not being humble before God I am standing up in my arrogance and I'm saying God I know more than you know And so, I, I, you know, somebody could say that if they have a problem and say, for example, with uh, alcohol or drugs. Well, I'm just going to dabble a little, God. Problem controlling language. I, I'm just going to, uh, it's not that bad, God. I don't use the really bad words. It, it's all of these different areas of life. And, it, and, it, and that's the thing about a, a, a message like this. This is not focused in on one thing in life. This is about the embodiment of who we are as a, as a person in Christ. What defines me. Am I this morning humble of mind? Is my first response when the Holy Spirit crushes my soul in a sermon or in my devotional life, is my first response to stand up and to justify what I do and how I do and what I think and how I think or is it to surrender and submit myself to God? Listen, surrendering and submitting myself to God doesn't mean that it's going to practically carry itself out in in my life perfectly from that moment forward every time. It means that my mind comes into focus with God until it comes in agreement with God. So, well, Pastor, I don't necessarily believe this thing that God's told me to do. Well, then by faith do it, and I promise you whenever you've done it and you've submitted yourself to it and you see the effect of it that you will come into agreement with it. You'll not come into agreement with it because God mandated it and demanded it. You'll come into agreement with it because you submitted yourself by faith and you see the benefit of how God uses it and works it out in your life every day. And that takes time. And again, this is not the kind of sermon this morning where we just say, okay, praise the Lord, I'm making this decision and I'm going to get up in the morning and all of a sudden I'm super Christian. It doesn't work that way. It is the beginning of a journey. It is the accepting of the, of the reality of who we are as opposed to who we should be. The essence of a humble mind, to be continuing for the faith, not our way, but God's way, uh, to be uh, submitted to the commands of God and realizing. And listen, I, I've been ministry work has been my full time occupation for 22 years. I have learned a lot of things in those 22 years, but I, one thing that I learned early on and I am reminded of often is that I can be wrong. There, there are a lot of times. When God has taught me, hey, you're wrong. You need to change your thinking on this. You need to change your behavior on this. You need to change your response to this. But sometimes we as Christians have a hard time admitting the fact, not to each other, but to God. Father, I I was wrong. It's not easy words to say. I remember as a kid growing up, one of the shows that we uh, watched in our home a lot on TV was Happy Days. And remember, if you're old enough to remember Happy Days, you remember the Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli, Mr. Cool, in his jeans, his white T-shirt, and his black leather jacket on his motorcycle. And he couldn't say, Brother Sandy, he was wrong. I was... He'd try to say it sometimes. I was... Sounds like Christians pray to the Lord sometimes. God, I was... You know, we need to learn to say sometimes that we're wrong. God can't fix me until I admit that I'm broken. God can't change my life until He proves to me or shows me or until I accept the fact that I don't always do everything right, that I don't always get everything right, that I don't always take the right approach, that I don't always have the right philosophy. That I, and listen, sometimes it may be that I'm, I'm clinging to a philosophy that at one time was right and effective but no longer is. And we need to be embracing the leadership of the Spirit of God, humble of mind. Then we see next the essence of meekness, the essence of meekness. Meekness is an interesting word because a lot of people think of meekness as weak. And the Bible tells us that other than the Lord Jesus Christ that Moses was the meekest man that ever lived, which if you read through the, the struggles that Moses had, the first thing that's going to come to your mind is not his meekness. I mean, you stop and you think about it. and You think about uh, God being angry at Israel and Moses intervening and then Moses being angry at Israel and God intervening. Uh, and then Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because he lashed out in anger and uh, disobeyed God because he was so angry. That, that, that's not meek. But we're not talking about an individual act. We're talking about his overwhelming spirit. He paid a high price for a moment of weakness, but his overwhelming demeanor was that of meekness. What is our overwhelming demeanor? Sometimes we try to define our lives by, uh, by the, uh, the highs and the lows. Well, I'm a good Christian because once upon a time I did this. No, I'm a good Christian because I, my life has been transformed into these things that we're talking about this morning. Meekness simply means Gentle. It has come into a place where I recognize that how I am to handle situations, how I'm to respond, how I'm to lead my family, how I'm to train my children, how I'm to, to interact with my grandchildren should be marked by gentleness. How should Christians respond? Listen, there may come a time and a place where it's right and appropriate to fight, where it's right and appropriate to take a stand, where it's right and appropriate to go to war, but the first response should be a response of gentleness to be made up of a mind and a heart that's that's humble before God. Realizing that people will remember how you are long after they have forgotten what you said. Lesser Orloff used to say, you can go, get too big for God, but never too small. Sometimes we just get a little bit too big for our britches. We need to stay humble before God and interact with God's people and with God himself meekly. Humbly. Number five, this morning we consider the essence of being long-suffering. The last word of verse number 12 is long-suffering. The word long-suffering has the indication of being in continuum. In other words, it is a continuing, ongoing process. It is not something that I am one time. It is something that is continuing to be uh, defining me about my personality. When we talk about long-suffering, we're talking about don't let others wear you out. In the military, we would say, learn to keep your bearing. And that just, I saw I saw a thing on Instagram today that, that the... branch of the military that I served in posted and it had a picture of a young guy uh, that was under duress, that was in a very taxing situation uh, and it it caught mostly his, a little bit the background, but mostly his face and it it said, keep your bearing. What that means is, if you're not, if if you have a military background, what that means is just keep yourself composed. Keep yourself under control. Don't lose it. Keep your bearing. Be long-suffering. I think that's kind of what Paul indicated sometimes. Whenever he said, "Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not." You see, being long-suffering is to uh, is to not let maybe that person that you are showing mercy to that is wronging you, and you're still continuing to treat them as if they've done you no wrong. And I'm not saying that it's that it's. Listen, it's not wrong if someone has done something to you for you to confront them kindly and say this is a problem and try to resolve it, but if they choose not to, then I'm still, as a Christian, to to be merciful. That is grinding. That is taxing on the heart and the mind. That will wear one down. And what he's saying here is he kind of works his way back to uh, a merciful attitude is be long suffering, in continuum, continually, time after time. I mean, somebody comes up and they do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Mercy, kindness, mercy, kindness, mercy. In the flesh, we want to crack them right across the jaw, but in the spirit, we have to. We have to just be kind. So, pastor. But what about this and what about that? Listen, do I trust in God or not? Is the battle the Lord's or not? I'm better off to suffer in faith, to be godly in Christ Jesus and suffer persecution in faith than to lash out in my own spirit and get vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We're talking about a fundamental change of how we think and how we present in life this morning. Be long-suffering. Then he says next, forbearing one another. Forbearing kind of continues the thought of long-suffering. It's kind of a, a, of a rephrase here uh, as he gets into, but it ties in with forgiveness. And so I've got them kind of put together uh, as our last point this morning. The essence of uh, forbearing and forgiving forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So he brings this back full circle here uh, as he defines for us what the essence of the Christian life should be. It is the essence of forgiving and for, forbearing and forgiving. Uh, forbearing, to, to give in, to continue to, uh, to show kindness, to extend mercy and forgiveness. Uh, and, and by the way, forbearing and forgiveness always go together. They cannot be divorced. They work together. And again, as it brings us back full circle, when we started with mercy, one of the things that I said about mercy was that I have to have been done wrong in order for me to extend mercy. I have to have been done wrong in order for me to forbear. I have to have been done wrong in order for me to forgive. And what is is it that should compose me? What composed Christ is that no matter what was done, He forgave. On the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He called Judas friend. Uh, and everywhere you turn, everywhere that you look and were there times when Jesus stood up and spoke strongly and called them a pit of vipers uh, and, and uh, that tell them that they were of their father the devil yes he did in the right context and in the right place to the right person but overwhelmingly what defined him and what made up his character and what he put on display was as he suffered forgive Why? Because in forgiveness he's lifted up. See, when you're done wrong and you show mercy, you lift up Christ. When I'm someone's overbearing and I'm meek, I lift up Christ. What is my responsibility as a Christian? It is to lift him up. And Jesus said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Hey, listen, when I respond in the flesh, when I lash out in anger, uh, when I respond in a way that displeases God, Brother Deck, I'm not doing one single thing to lift up anybody but me. But when I'm meek, when I forgive, when I extend kindness, when I show compassion, when I'm merciful, when I'm long suffering, when I'm forbearing, I'm lifting up Jesus. Jesus. And when I lift up Jesus, the world stops and takes notice. When I lift up Jesus, heaven stops and takes notice. And when I lift up Jesus, my Savior is glorified. See, I was born a sinner. And I was born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature likes to rear itself up sometimes. I can have a pretty mean streak. Sometimes I can have a pretty quick and sharp and cutting wit. Most of the time it's just in good humor, but occasionally it's meant to cut a little bit. That's not the essence of what embodies Christ. That's the old me trying to get back up. So we started off this morning, I must mortify therefore your members. I must put that... To death, I must put that away. Why? Because a new creature needs to rise. I must set my affection on things above. If I set my affection on the things of this world, if I set my affection on self-defense, if I set my affection uh, on uh, on getting the things that I think that I want or I deserve or I'm entitled to, if I set my affection on those carnal things, then I am I am not pleasing to God, nor am I exercising faith in God, nor am I putting myself in a position to lift up my Savior. But when the old man is dead and the new man is determined and I set my affection on things above, then the Holy Spirit begins to do a miraculous, transformative work in my heart. He begins to change not just my outward action, but my inward being. And the overwhelming goal and the fundamental truth of Christianity is that the saving power of Jesus Christ should not just change our outward act, but it should change who we are fundamentally from the inside out. The essence of the Christian life. What is the essence of your life this morning? Are you merciful? Are you kind? Is it your first impulse to be humble or meek? Is it your first impulse your first response your instinctive intuitive response to be long suffering and forget forbearing and forgiving if there's anybody in here that could answer yes to all of those things please see me in the lobby after the service so I can bow down at your feet because i really believe the only person that'll ever that ever fully embraces this is jesus but It's what should be taking place on the inside of our lives. A movement from what we were when He saved us to what we'll become when we enter into His presence and receive a glorified body. And along the way, we can lift Him up and our lives can impact those around us. Would you this morning allow the Spirit to speak to your heart and say, Lord, I want to embody the essence of the Christian life. See, if I don't start by the choice of I want this to be what defines me. I want this to be what I'm known for. I want this to be the person that I become. You'll never get started on that path. I have to own who I am before I can dispose of who I was so that I can become who he wants me to be.